Ooh, a spicy question. I <laughs> because love it. Because the writing is sort of everything, right? Like you can, can fix plot holes, but if the yeah. writing... So some there. readers love that and some readers are like, but I wanted more of this. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a gamble. Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by a critically acclaimed writer of adult and young adult and non-fiction all the way from Victoria, Australia. It's Eliza Henry-Jones. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Welcome. We are recording this just days before your most recent novel, Salt and Skin, comes out in the UK. It's been out in Australia for a while now, but it's about to come to the UK. Tell us a little bit about it. So I wrote Salt and Skin during the COVID lockdowns down here in Australia and where I am in Melbourne had some of the longest lockdowns in the world. So um, which was both, I think, quite conducive to writing and also um, made things a little bit trickier. But Mm. um, Salt and Skin took me about, I think, three years to write. Um, And it's a story of a bereaved woman um, called Luda and her two teenage children. And um, it's a story of them moving from their drought-stricken farm in Australia to a collection of remote Scottish islands, which were inspired by the Orkneys, but I wouldn't go as far to say as... (laughs) the story being set there because I just took far too many um, very, very wild detours from anything factual. (laughs) And I was very inspired by the um, Orcadian witch hunts that happened there in the 17th century. And so Mm -hmm. there's a thread of that um, running through this this fictionalised version of the islands. And it's a story of how this quite fragmented family each find connection and meaning on these islands and um, one of them through deep diving into the North Sea, um, another through seeking out the fragmented pieces of the witch's stories and another one through searching out the origins of a wild foundling who's suspected of being a selkie. And all the while I really wanted this atmosphere to be sort of simmering away in the back, this tension growing. And um, there's this, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully there's this (laughs) sense of the simmering violence that um, I suppose caused the witch trials continue yeah. on into the present yes yeah, yeah yeah it is it is sort of sort of pseudo supernatural element to it without yes. being too kind of fantastical yes it's all very it's liminal i am um, i wanted to have you know selkies and ghosts and mermaids and witches that had been alive for hundreds of years but i also wanted there to be this kind of um adjacent narrative that could explain it a lot more mundanely mm-hmm. i had a lot of fun basically <laughs> And speaking of, I mean, this is, this is your fifth novel and all of your stories have a very strong emphasis on like families and identity and loss. Um, am I right in thinking that you studied, you've studied those areas within like psychology? Yes. So I um, studied psychology and grief, loss and trauma counseling, and I worked for quite a few years in the drug rehabilitation sector. So working with families where there was parental substance abuse and children and it's a big focus on getting people linked in with community and trying to stop those patterns of transgenerational trauma happening over and over. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's, um, I think it's Roxane Gay that talks about how so often in writing, you just end up continuously just pressing on the bruise and just circling back again and again to these <laughs> same topics and themes. And I, I swear, if I set out to write a story about a beach ball or a tree or something, it would somehow circle back and end up being about families and grief and trauma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's people always say 
write what you know. But I think in some ways, it's almost impossible not to, if you know what I mean. Yes. Like you always come back to it. And I think we end up knowing about what we're curious about, right? We, we end up circling those things. That's true. With all of your stories, do you think it's a sort of, it, I guess this is a chicken and egg thing. Does the inception of the kind of characters and the settings and the, and the narratives come from your kind of knowledge of trauma and, and like the things you've studied and the things you've seen? Or do you think you start writing a story and then subconsciously you just bring that, those things in? Um, I think it's a really good question. I think I've always been drawn <laughs> to grief and trauma. I, I'm just thinking back my, um, my first young adult novel, my third novel overall peers for Pearl. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote that when I was 16 and it ended up being my um, art project for the final year of high school. And wow. it's then sat in a drawer for 10 years, but um, I was just thinking <laughs> of that. And again, very similar themes around mental illness and families and fragments and connection and yeah. Yeah. So I, I think for me, I think I've followed those topics both clinically and in my fictional work because they're very interesting to me. Um, and I mean, Salt and Skin ended up being a PhD thesis, the creative part of a PhD thesis that again was looking at climate change and trauma and grief and, you know, how sites of trauma kind of keep haunting us. So I, yeah, it's, I don't know, maybe one day I'll write something without any trauma or grief. <laughs> maybe. Piers Papel, you say you wrote that when you were 16. Yes. Ten, 10 years sort of in the back of your mind and then you yes. bring it out again. I'm going to assume that there was some big edits that happened to that. Yeah, I think when I wrote it, I was really into the thesaurus on words. So there was quite a few <laughs> words that shouldn't have been in there. Okay. And, um, I had a little bit of an existential crisis because I had to go through and like remove references to um, like a six stacker CD player because, you know, everyone, yeah, everyone 10 years later has obviously got, you know, MP3 players and iPhones and stuff. So that made me feel a little bit old, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, it was quite a, it was really fascinating actually bringing that out as an adult and actually having this content that I had created when I was a member of the target audience. Um yeah, it was a really um, very strange process, but I, I really enjoyed it and I'm, I was very happy that it um, didn't end up whiling away long, long years in the, in the drawer with all my other stories. <laughs> okay, so there, there are lots of books sitting locked away. Oh, yes, it's a graveyard. <laughs> was that the first one that you, you ever wrote? Um, no, that was the third. So I okay. wrote a manuscript a year from when I was about 14. Um, what? <laughs> Like full length, like yeah, 60,000 words. Yeah, 70, 80,000 words. Oh my God. And, um, you know, the the others are all absolutely dreadful. But, um, <laughs> and I, it was basically because I was a very anxious, anxious teenager and, um, yeah, had a lot of unaddressed mental health issues. And I've never been one for journaling, but writing these very, um, immersive works of fiction allowed me to sort of work through a lot of the stuff that I was sitting with and, yeah, trying to untangle. And, um, I think I missed about a third of high school. Um, just basically pulling sickies. Um, no, I do not recommend it. <laughs> um, and just staying at home and just writing. And um, wow, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have been the the process that I would have chosen, but um, I think it. I think it was a. It's a time in your life where you're both very busy, but you also don't have a lot of responsibility and things that you obligations that you're kind of you know really strapped to. So it. I guess I took advantage of that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, um, I'd say so. So you must have written dozens of books. Yeah, um, quite quite prolific. Um, I <laughs> only type with two fingers, so it's it's very sort of aggressive, sort of just stabbing of the keyboard. <laughs> have you have you ever tried to learn to like touch type and stuff, or, or are you happy with the the two fingers as like part of your process? Um, my fingers. I don't think my keyboard is very happy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the keys end up getting very worn out, but um, I think I've just kind of embraced it. I've I've accepted it. Um, okay, fair enough. My two fingers, my furious two finger typing. <laughs> okay, so let's get back onto like a more kind of publishing thing. Yes, obviously you've written a lot. You have. You've also published. I mean, this is the fifth book that you're publishing, mm-hmm. and does it? I, I'm wondering. First book you published in the quiet, 2015. Does it feel when you do these kinds of launch things? And I know this came out last year in Australia, so you probably had a whole um, press launch back then. But does it feel very different when you do, when you know, when you release a novel now from back to, in 2015 when your first one came out? Oh, absolutely. I used to feel like I was going to throw up every time I had to public speak or talk to anyone about anything. Um, I was, I really struggled with that. And um, I don't know, sometime over the last eight years, and I think teaching at university definitely helped, but I just sort of reached this saturation point And now mm-hmm. I enjoy it like it's such a such a lovely thing to get to sit down and chat books and writing and stories with people yeah it's interesting how it changes for a lot of people Mm. a lot of people you know there's also like a kind of obviously there's a there's a massive excitement when your first book's coming out but then there's like a sort of the the not knowing can be really scary at the same time oh absolutely people seem to kind of be much more relaxed with the second one and then when the third one comes around, it's a kind of like, oh, I know how this goes. I can just enjoy it and have fun. It is a little bit like that. And um, oh, I remember um, oh, a wonderful writer, Solari Gantil, she was, I ran into her just as my first book had come back from the printer and I remember her telling me that, you know, there's there's nothing that feels quite as, as special in the book world as just cradling that first, that first print run of your first novel and to just <laughs> carry it around and cuddle it like a cat. It's, it's that, that's the, the, the kind of thing that I think a lot of people see as like the dream is, mm. is the tangible thing of like going into a bookshop and hold it, like seeing a book on the shelf and holding it for the first time and be like, wow, I created this and look at all the other books that it's with. Yes. Cause it's, it's suddenly a thing, you know, it's, it's yeah, this it's physical thing with a, hopefully a pretty cover. And, <laughs> you know, I think eight years, eight years since I was published and it's, I haven't lost that sense of astonishment that people are willing to give, you know, the most valuable thing that we have as human beings is our time and the fact that people mm-hmm. will spend their valuable time in this world that I just made up just absolutely feels incredibly magical. Yes. And um it's also thinking that it's kind of kind of ironic that you've got generally a a collection of people who are very happy sitting in their on they're happy in their own company. They're happy just sitting. They're happy just not having huge interaction with other people. And then, you know, you get a book published and suddenly you've got to talk to all sorts of people and articulate <laughs> your work and, and you yeah. know, do all this public-facing stuff, which is – and I suspect that, you know, like the Venn diagram <laughs> of people, you know, um, people who write and people who love public speaking, um, you know, I think – instinctively would be two very separate circles like there's wouldn't be a lot of overlap I imagine <laughs> yeah I, I, I'd, I'd probably it would probably skew towards not wanting to public speak but liking to write I imagine 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But getting back onto, uh, it's a very different experience now that you've launched a number of books. Going back to, you know, In the Quiet, your first published novel, has your approach to writing changed a lot since then? Uh, absolutely. It's, it's changed massively. And I've just been thinking about that actually, as I sort of am in the early stages of working on my next book. And, um, I think I've, I'm a lot more aware of what my weaknesses are as a writer and I'm a lot more willing to sort of seek out books on craft and, um, journal articles and all that sort of thing to try and enrich my practice. And I think Mm -hmm. when my first book had come out, I was so uncertain about writing that, Anytime I'd picked up any sort of craft book and tried to sort of, you know, in inverted commas, get better at writing, I just ended up feeling like there was nothing valid about my process and that I I didn't write like that. So I wasn't a real writer. I'd never be a real writer. And I'd try to sort of enact all these things that just didn't fit in with how I wrote. And I think the difference is now that I'm a lot more aware of what I need to work on and aware of what's going to fit in with what works for me as a writer so I can read things and go okay that's not useful that's not useful oh here's a little nugget this is really good I'm going to start thinking about it like this yeah which you know is a bit slightly counterintuitive I guess but um I'm also really been enjoying just really delving into those texts I also think that I'm stepping outside my comfort zone a lot more. My previous four novels were very much in my existing wheelhouse. They were looking at family. They were set solely in Australia. They were drawing on, you know, areas that I already knew a lot about, whereas Salt and Skin (laughs) was this just very comparatively ambitious project. It was set on the Orkneys. Um, It's across five different character perspectives it's across quite a few years. It deals with these really big topics. Um, and there's a lot of topics. There's a lot of things going on. I think that I'm more willing to step outside of my comfort zone now than I was, which is good because I think it keeps the actual process of writing more interesting and exciting. And Yeah, I think I definitely. I think the times when I've it almost like a writing exercise. I think it's so healthy for writers to, you know, let's say that you write um, procedural crime. If you just as a, as a writing exercise spent a few hours and were like, you know, what, I'm just going to write, um, I'm going to write, uh, you know, like a, like a crazy fantasy excerpt with like magic and fairies and things doing something like that and really like focusing on it. Even if you never decide to do that, I think it opens up whole new kind of like ways of looking at things when you go back to the thing that you're more familiar with. Absolutely. Cause it all like drills down to story doesn't it? Exactly. And telling a story and having something that breathes in the narrative. And I think that really does transcend genre. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'll, I was talking to someone about this recently. I'll read almost any genre there is because the thing that like grabs me is like, what's the narrative? Like, can I attach to the characters and like, do the characters kind of go on a journey that break, that draws me in? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So talking about your process and how it's changed, are you, and I don't, this is something that I find people often say it does kind of change as they kind of write more books and go through the motions. Are you uh, someone that plans everything out meticulously or are you a sort of go with the flow? Oh Lord, I wish I was someone that planned everything meticulously. <laughs> <laughs> I've um, got a brilliant group of 
writerly friends here in Australia and some of them are just these absolutely magical, meticulous plotters and they'll spend three months plotting everything down. They use those um, little cue cards, a couple of cue cards with the lines. Okay. And they, they know every scene in every chapter and they write the story chronologically, do some light edits, and then that book's kind of ready for publication. Whereas I am a chaos demon. I um, <laughs> I have to... I have to have the voice at the start. I have to have the voice and I have to have a sense of the vague themes that I want to explore. And then it either comes down to setting or character or something that's more visceral and anchoring. Um, But, yeah, once I've got Mm -hmm. the voice and I've kind of um, waddled along for maybe 10,000, 15,000 words and I feel like, right, I've I've got my starting point, I've sort of put the peg in the earth, I'll then often jump to the very end and write the ending. Um, so I just, I know where I'm headed. I don't I have no idea how I'm going to oh, get there, but I like to know where I'm going. And um, this is quite funny. I've always written, how would you describe it? Jumping around. Like I don't write, I don't write chronologically. I will jump to whatever scene I feel like writing. And yeah. I kind of justified it as, and I do think it works in this way. I justified it as you know, if you're writing about what you're interested in, the scene that feels most urgent to you on any given day, it's actually going to translate and really strengthen your writing. And then Mm -hmm. you can just kind of thread together those key vital urgent scenes at the end. And you've sort of got hopefully this narrative that really keeps chugging along. But um, halfway through writing Salt and Skin, I was actually diagnosed with ADHD. um, And suddenly my... (laughs) My my process of just jumping around like a like I'm on a pogo stick throughout the manuscript um, suddenly just made a lot more sense. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I can put a label on this. That's yeah. why. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I've heard I I've heard two arguments for doing um, either side of, of that kind of um, thing in Brandon Sanderson's series of lectures, which are all online on YouTube for free. I recommend anyone um watch them they're they're really really good he's he 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 kind of very much is in your camp of if something is is like if, if he's thought of a scene or a sequence that's going to happen and it's happened and he's not there yet if he's writing chronologically he'll jump forward and write that because he's like the energy and excitement i have i need to like write that now because it's going to be it's at its best when i'm like really excited to get to it mm. and then conversely um, a friend of mine was always, they used the exciting scene as a sort of carrot on the stick <laughs> as like, a, oh, it's going to be so great when I get there. I've got to like buckle down and just get, you know, get through this bit and, and then I can have my really fun bit afterwards and that works for them. Mm. So it's, you can see both sides of that, of that discussion. And it's like you said earlier, it's, you've got to find the thing that works for you. Absolutely. And um, I was listening to a podcast recently with George Saunders, whose work and any material he puts out, I absolutely love. But um, he was talking about, and I felt very attacked by this, he was talking about <laughs> how, um, you know, it actually makes no difference whether you enjoy the process or not. And I think I'd been using that a little bit as a get-out-of-jail-free card for myself. Like if I wasn't really feeling it, I'd be like, oh, there's no point working on that today. I'm just going to get along with something else. But um, mm-hmm. he thinks that, yeah, there's actually, there's no discernible difference um, and you should just, you know, do the hard work, get it done, um, sort of grit teeth and slog through. And um yeah, yeah, I did kind of feel a little bit attacked. So I guess, yeah, it's just finding <laughs> finding what works. And and I think as well it can shift as you continue to write. It can shift over years. And I think it can really shift from book to book. I used to imagine that, you know, authors that had several books out would know how to write books. And yeah. 
for me, every time I sit down to write a book, the process has been quite different. Like every single story is its own beast with its own challenges and its own little little foibles. So um, yeah, maybe maybe I'll get there in like you know fifty years. I'm still writing. I'll <laughs> work out work out how to do it. You know, I bet though, I bet you because you have written so much. You know, you said that you wrote full manuscripts every year from the age of 14 or 15. Um, I bet there is a very subconscious part of your brain that is very like trained on how to, how you're structuring things. And the stuff that you're focusing on is, is, is much more kind of nuanced things that I, that I think probably a lot of writers who haven't written as much as you, who haven't like practiced as much probably aren't even focusing on the kind of nuances at the kind of earlier drafts because they don't have the breadth of practice that you have got, if that makes sense. That is one of the most comforting things anyone has ever said to me. Thank you, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) You're so welcome. But I think that has to be true because I think like writing is a creative art and I think all the creative arts are like so much of it just comes down to practice Mm. that you need to practice the craft and then you will get better and it will just kind of be ingrained within you. I do like that. And I think that sits alongside this idea of sort of helplessly circling back to the same topics because it does come from Mm -hmm. quite a wordless place. It comes from your subconscious and maybe the practical side of things comes from there too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think it has to at a certain point. It's like, you know, um, practicing for any kind of sport or anything. Yes. At first you're like really concentrating on the motions and then the more you do it, you forget about the motions and then you're concentrating on like, you know, perfecting your aim or like your a, a very specific technique mm. because you, everything else is just second nature at that point. Absolutely, and I think because those goalposts, oh, goalposts, those goalposts <laughs> keep shifting, and you know, your focus keeps getting more and more specific. Um, the focus, I guess, is sort of stays at the same level, so you perhaps mm-hmm. don't feel like that improvement is happening as much as it is, or you don't feel that growth because you're still working really hard on getting better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Before we get on to the, the the last couple of questions, I'd love to ask about, so Salt and Skin came out in Australia with Ultimo and is coming out in the UK with um, September Books. Mm-hmm. Your previous novels were all with HarperCollins. Yes. Was there a big difference in how the, the kind of the whole process worked from working with HarperCollins to these different publishers? Um. I was with two different imprints at HarperCollins, so Fourth Estate for my two adult novels and then the young adult imprint for my two young adult novels. And I think I've found each of them quite different. I think there's a lot of uniqueness in, in across the different imprints and different people have different ways of working. And um, I think I've been incredibly lucky, though, with the people that I've worked with, um, some very, very very clever, clever, clever publishers and editors <laughs> who I just want to like go down on my hands and knees in front of them and thank them for just yeah <laughs> turning my my very chaotic manuscripts into things that are arguably coherent stories. <laughs> I, they are, I think, definitely coherent stories. <laughs> I don't know if they were before the editors got to them, but when, afterwards I can confirm they are coherent stories. Bless the editors. <laughs> So I'm curious, was the working with HarperCollins, the two different imprints, were those multi-book deals? Ah, uh, yes. Yes, they were. Okay. So was that two separate two-book deals? Yeah. So a um, three-book deal initially with 
uh, for the state and then a two book deal for the young adult novels. Okay. I can't help but notice there's no third book with fourth estate. Oh, it's, it's coming. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, hold on guys. There's only so much I can write at once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I could um, master kind of, you know, having one hand, you know, on each two keyboards and just kind of aggressively, <laughs> aggressively stab both at the same time. That's it. You're being held back by only using two of your fingers. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I was just curious about that. And it's because it, it's often um, an author will stay with one publisher for a long time. So it's interesting to hear that you've been with two different imprints and like now different publishers as well, and that they are all great, but different and unique in their own ways. It's a very different experience from, from, from what you've kind of learned. It's a very different experience with every imprint and every publisher. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that um, you know, there's a lot of movement. I don't know whether it's the same in the UK, but publishing houses here, there's, you know, people will move from one to the other and, you know, different freelancers will, you know, work across different publishing houses. So there's there's a lot of kind of fluidity about where people are based. Yeah, but I guess the approach and kind of mindset is is more kind of within the imprint itself, within yeah. the kind of infrastructure of the each publisher. Yeah. Um. Slightly off topic. I did, I really wanted to slip this in before we get to the last question. Slightly off top, off top, off topic question. Um, I'm curious because I have your press release in front of me, and it says uh, that you are based on a flower farm. Does that mean that you grow and sell flowers wholesale? Yeah. So um, I started it up with my cousin, and it's actually turned out to be this perfect thing that just beautifully complements writing because. It gets me out with other people and it gets me, you know, hands in the dirt, out in the sunshine, away from my laptop. Oh. And um, there's something just so satisfying about planting a seed and then watching it grow and then you harvest it. Yeah. And it's just such a clear, <laughs> a clear kind of cycle or I don't know. It's um Yeah. I mean, the cycle of life, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, so we don't, it's not, it's just like a little side project um, that we, we grow we don't use any harmful chemicals. We don't, we grow seasonally. Um, we've got beehives, so it's all bee friendly. And we've got like little blue tongue lizards and oh. um, frogs and things in the patches. And then we sell wholesale to florists and we also sell direct to the public. And we run workshops on flower growing and flower arranging and writing in our little barn that we did up. So it's all very wholesome. It is, yeah. And it sounds a bit idyllic. I mean, do you have... Are there certain times of the year where you just have a kind of beautiful field of flowers that you can sit and just write with this like lovely view in front of you? Oh, I do. I very actually rarely do that because (laughs) during those times of year, everything is so frantically busy and we've got workshops, we're doing picks and, and I can't look at it without just seeing a list of jobs. Um, I'm sure other people could come and sit and (laughs) admire the flower field while they write. But um, yeah, over summer, I kind of have to, I I will actually go and sit in my horse's paddock in a beanbag if I want to be outside to write, um, which which does not, does not overlook any of the flower beds. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, I thought it would, I thought in my head, I pictured this very beautiful, like perfect scene of you, like sitting up at a desk, looking over these fields of flowers, but I can, I can see where that might stress you out. <laughs> I mean, I do bring them inside and have them in little, little vases on my desk and um, I'll enjoy them more there, but just the patch, cause I'll look at it and go, 
oh, I need to put in more irrigation or, oh, I need to cut that back <laughs> or I need to, you know, weed that or I need to put, you know, fertilise this. And it's just, you know, adulting really. Yes, being an adult. But you but you love it and it sounds, it sounds like a lovely um, venture that you guys have going there. It is. It's good fun. So before we get to the final question, what, just a quick one, what advice would you give to young writers uh, or any age writers um, looking to break into publishing and, and get their work uh, launched into the world? Um, my advice might be a little bit counterintuitive to a lot of the advice floating around out there. But for me, I think the number one priority as a writer has to be to preserve and cultivate the joy in writing because you know, you can sort of write to different trends or you can write what you think a publisher wants or whatever, but things are so changeable. And by the, you know, you could say, okay, I'm going to write this type of thriller, but then by the time you finish, things have kind of moved on to the next, next kind of thing. And it's just, it's so unpredictable. And I think the only thing you really have control of as a writer is what you get out of the process of actually putting those words down on the page, which is also the part that takes the longest and the part that requires the most investment. So, and I don't mean, you know, you just sort of sit there with an idiotic grin on your face, you know, hammering away with two <laughs> fingers at your keyboard, but you have to get something out of it. And whether that's learning about writing through writing, working on your project, whether it's writing about something that you're really passionate about, whether it's about creating a world that you just find utterly immersive and therapeutic to be in, whether you're creating these characters that you find engaging, you know, just whatever it is, you just have to get something out of it. And I do think, I do think, and this might be a bit, you know, idealised, but I really do think that the best stories come out of that space, um, regardless mm -hmm. of what George Saunders says. <laughs> <laughs> well, my counterpoint to George Saunders would be, if it's all the same, you know, why not write the thing that makes you happy at the time? Well, that's it. And then you'll be happier throughout the process, if it's all the same. <laughs> it's time, time's valuable. Um, and that brings us to the final question, which as always is, Eliza, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would you take with you? Uh, honestly, it would depend on what day I was dropped onto this <laughs> desert island. I am incredibly fickle with my, with my favorite books. Um, mm -hmm. I would probably, if I was picked up and dropped onto a desert island today, it would be possibly because we've been talking about him so much, um, George Saunders, Lincoln and the Bardo, uh, <laughs> which I, which is one of my favourite books um, in the universe and I just think it's so clever and so remarkable and so astonishing how we pulled that together. Um, I think it's mm -hmm. quite a divisive book. Um, people either seem to really love it or really hate it, but um, I love it and I think it's got enough going on in there to sort of keep me occupied for a while while I'm sitting on my little island. Yeah, and and you can and then you can ponder about whether you can try and decide which chapters he was suffering through yes. and which ones he enjoyed writing. <laughs> yeah, it'll keep me occupied. <laughs> exactly. Amazing. Well, thank you so much Eliza for coming on the podcast and telling us all about your your books and your writing and and publishing um and flowers. I very much enjoyed hearing about your flower farm. Uh it's been really amazing chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me on, Jamie. Such a pleasure. And for anyone listening, if you want to keep up with what Eliza is doing, you can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Eliza Henry Jones. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow along on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. You can support the show on Patreon. And for more bookish chat, check out my other podcast, The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes. 
Thanks again to Eliza and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.